Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the military's resilience lessons learned could work for IT too. Doing things where we have redundant systems like fuel, we harden command and control, we spread out our aircraft and our ships, we don't park things as closely together, which allows us to be really efficient. Is the government maximizing its data for better FATARA performance? I think the answer is no. There may be additional data that we could use. And one of government's automation gurus likes what he sees as he heads for the exit. I'm very excited about that, where the government is, and, and, and how many agencies are producing more automations. It's Monday, January 24th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The new chair of the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Board wants to make his work boring again. Jeff Dalton tells FedScoop one of his goals is transitioning the CMMC board from startup to a group of strategic advisors. Dalton says making the process more boring will involve cutting what he calls the drama vendors associate with CMMC. The leader of the Continuous Diagnostics and Mitigation Program says the White House Executive Order on Cybersecurity is shifting his organization's mission. The acting program manager for CDM at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, Richard Grabowski, says the EO frees up his organization to work more collaboratively with agencies. Grabowski tells FedScoop that collaborative effort makes his office's role more of what he calls sense-making of specific incidents. You can read more about these and lots of other stories at fedscoop.com. The Army is making its first moves to expand cloud access outside the continental United States. The Chief Information Officer of the Army, Raj Iyer, tells FedScoop his service is in the beginning stages of the first tactical cloud system for its forces in the Pacific this year. Stacy Pettijohn is Senior Fellow and Director of the Defense Program at the Center for a New American Security and writing about resilience in the Indo-Pacific. Stacy, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program today. What's the issue that you see that we we suffer from are dealing with in the Indo-Pacific. Welcome. Thanks for having me here. Um, the issue in the Indo-Pacific is that our military posture has become very concentrated. It's shrunk over time. And we have a sub, just a few large bases in the region at this time where we put a lot of forces on each base, which makes them very lucrative targets in the event of a conflict. And Chinese military strategy and doctrine uh, tends to emphasize seizing the initiative. And a key part of that has been their development of long-range precision-guided crews and ballistic missiles that can target U.S. bases and U.S. forces in the region. Um, out to Guam at this point, which is pretty far, and uh, Fixed facilities, so ports, airfields, headquarters, um, are particularly vulnerable. Um, they're big, juicy targets. And it seems like China's opening move in any conflict would be to strike at these locations so that U.S. forces would be unable to intervene. 
Um, and this has been a problem that has been well known for a long time. Uh, the People's Liberation Army has invested a tremendous amount of money in developing missiles, uh, ground-based missiles, but also those for its air forces and um, for its Navy. And um, we have done very little to increase the survivability of U.S. forces in the region. You write in this piece, absent a crisis, the Defense Department finds it difficult to significantly change America's global posture. Given all of the conversation that is going on about recognizing China, we're a number of years now into a national defense strategy that recognizes China and Russia as peer, near peer competitors. Uh, the Secretary of the Air Force, Frank Kendall, has said on any number of occasions, he's shifting his force to basically combating China is the message that I take from his words. I don't mean to read um, into what he's saying, but that's what I take away from his remarks. Is that not enough, I guess, to manifest itself in, in strategic and, and deployment changes in your view, Stacey? Hopefully we're reaching that tipping point. Um, uh, that would be my hope when I had a conversation with Secretary Kendall yesterday and he indicated that resiliency was one of his number one priorities, um, or at least top priority. Uh, and that it hopefully means that he will invest sort of the capital and the leadership to make sure that these changes actually happen. Um, it, there, it's difficult to change posture because, A, it involves host nations, so you have to have agreements with other countries, and those are always politically sensitive conversations to have. B, um, you know, there's a reticence on the part of Congress typically to spend money and military construction funds overseas, um, not in a congressional district. Uh, C, the services, and this might be one of the biggest problems, um, just tend to deprioritize supporting infrastructure and equipment and prefer to spend money on combat systems. So they'd rather buy ships, airplanes, tanks, missiles than um, the less attractive but critically important uh, things like pouring concrete to have uh, multiple runways that you could operate from, having redundant you know, uh, cranes to load missiles onto ships and submarines and um, different types of supporting equipment. And those are exactly the kinds of investments that China's making all around the globe, isn't it? Yeah, China is definitely starting to uh, extend out of the East Asia and um, more broadly trying to establish a small presence. It's hard to say always whether it's military or dual use since um, it's often commercial companies in places like Djibouti um, and other locations. So um, they do recognize the value of having a, a network of bases because it allows you to project power. And the U.S. military just has to actually invest resources in protecting that critical asset to ensure that it can fight and thereby strengthen deterrence. All right, you're right. The situation in the, in the Indo-Pacific is not hopeless and war is not inevitable. But the United States needs to take steps to enhance deterrence in the next five years. Uh, why is that five-year window so important? And what are the steps that are necessary in your view, Stacey? Five years was somewhat of an arbitrary window. Um, it, honestly, I chose it because it aligns with the FIDAP and uh, our process. Um, but you've had, it also aligns with the fact that you've heard um, two Indo-PACOM commanders now in a row suggest that the probability of China 
Chinese leaders thinking that they could successfully invade Taiwan going up by 2027. And it's clear that the balance is shifting in the Indo-Pacific region and is in a way that is unfavorable to the United States. And a lot of the changes that we need to make in terms of modernizing our forces and investing in new technologies like autonomy and AI are things that we cannot do very quickly. It takes years to build ships. It takes years to, um, you know, make sure that technology is mature, are safe and trusted. One of the things that we can do more quickly, because these are not new capabilities, um, and this is also an area where we have done some of the political legwork with allies, the Philippines and Australia, we've talked about and have some nascent basing agreements that could be expanded. So that's why I say it is a near-term priority. It's one of the few things we can do right now to uh, shore up the balance. And it's very crisis stabilizing because it makes that first strike less attractive because it's less likely to be successful. What does a good outcome look like? What does, what does, what's different five years from now, given the scenario that you just outlined in an optimum scenario? It might be really hard to actually visibly see this from the outside. Um, One of the things that I've advocated for and that I think is critically important is actually just um, implementing a layered number of passive defenses on an existing basis. So like Kadena Air Base and now uh, Yokota in uh, Japan, doing things where we have redundant systems like fuel, we harden command and control We spread out our aircraft and our ships. We don't park things as closely together, which allows us to be really efficient and is how the U.S. military today prefers to operate. Um, Those steps we can do immediately and um, will be difficult to discern from the outside, but um, will actually be really useful in terms of improving the ability of our forces to withstand uh, an attack. The other piece would be spreading our forces out across more bases. And this isn't uh, permanent new bases, but sort of um, making improvements to infrastructure at some of the bases that we've received access to in the Philippines under the Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement. We've made almost zero progress, and a lot of that has been due to politics, um, which has been contentious under President Duterte. But... um, The Biden administration um, got the Visiting Forces Agreement uh, renewed, and it seems like that we are on an uptick. So actually um, making improvements to those airfields so U.S. forces could operate there um, and pre-positioning equipment potentially for Marines, for Army Multi-Domain Task Force, for the Air Forces, for ships. Same thing with Australia. Um, we've been saying for years that we plan to rotate more aircraft and more bombers and tankers to Australia. So not permanent basing, occasional visits using different airfields, um, particularly in the north, which are outside of the worst threat rings um, and less vulnerable to Chinese attack. And nothing um, has been done to uh, improve those facilities so that they can support U.S. operations. So I see as an important next step from the AUKUS, the Australia-UK-US agreement, is actually actualizing um, some of those access agreements and investing in the infrastructure, um, perhaps putting shared stockpiles of critical munitions, anti-ship, long-range anti-ship missiles, um, uh, increasing uh, sort of 
aircraft that can patrol the seas and keep an eye on what's happening there. Um, and all of that would help to um, bolster deterrence. Stacey Pettyjohn of the Center for a New American Security. Thanks very much for coming on today. Great conversation. Thanks for having me. You can find a link to Stacey's piece in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. A new Fatara scorecard is coming. Version 14 will look and grade differently than version 13 that came out last week. Suzette Kent is CEO at Kent Advisory Services. She's former federal chief information officer, and she was a witness at the Fatara scorecard hearing last week. Suzette, welcome. It's great to talk to you. Uh, You wrote this in your written testimony. My comments today will center on two areas, evolving what is measured and innovating how those things might be measured. Why did you use the word innovating how we're measuring the Fatara scorecard now? Welcome, Suzette. Well, thank you, Francis. Glad to be here. And I was actually excited to testify. That was kind of a- I think you're the first person in history that's ever (laughs) said that. You know, the opening up, evolving the scorecard is something that I spent a lot of time on with the CIO council when I was in the role. And it it continues to matter. And as I said in my testimony, we want to measure things that matter. We've seen the scorecard has driven improvement. So so let's double down on the things that we need. And and when I talked about the how we measure, there's currently a, a, a pair or a um, kind of a framework of it has to be publicly available federal data. And that sometimes limits what we can actually measure, the timeframes in which we measure. You know, there was a FISMA hearing. They talked about you know, the, the fact that some, many of those aren't timely. But also, it, it's some of the information is tiered. It's self-reported. Um, tiered data means agencies are actually competing against each other, right? It's not necessarily did I meet certain objectives? It's did I do better than someone else? That's not necessarily the, the approach that you know we want to use. We have a high bar and we should measure all agencies you know, to that bar. But also there are things that are important um, around how citizens perceive services delivered. And so I, I wanted to at least put forth the idea that we look at external measures in the areas like um, customer experience, like cyber, where government really is more on par, you know, with private sector, and there's some not only mature measures, but me- measures that go much deeper. Whether it's demographics, um, whether it's timeliness, or, or whether it's looking at you know um, a, a broader industry, and they could tell us things that would help. CIOs and agency teams move faster to improve you know, those sets of services. Doesn't apply to everything. We know that there are some nuances that are different, um, but thinking about that as we evolve the scorecard was an important part of the conversation. All right. You have five potential metrics that you presented to the committee to change the FATARA scorecard. The first one is not an actual thing, uh, is not how I read it. It's just start with suggestions from the CIO council. Um, why is it a good idea to ask the people who you'd be grading what you should grade them on? <laughs> well, uh, 
Francis, I, I kind of said that because every year, almost every year, the CIO Council comes forth with and shares with Congress ideas about improving the scorecard. Um, you know what? They they care. They want it to matter as well. They uh, that that as I talked about, kind of those tier ratings aren't as productive, um, and. They want, there's, they measure so many things right now. And as we talk through, maybe talk through some of these others, there are things in law, executive order and policy that are really important that they are already tracking to and measuring. So the, the suggestion there is not necessarily let them define, but involve them in the conversation. Let's not create new burden. And maybe we highlight the things they're supposed to be doing anyway yeah. and that they're holding themselves accountable for. All right. Fair enough. Um, the, and the the burden of reporting, I think, is is interesting because I don't know that we've talked about that nearly as much. And to be fair, I don't think CIOs have complained about it nearly as much regarding Fatara as they have over the years about the FISMA scorecard, which uh, I mean, is just I, I'm, you know better than me, has just <laughs> been a long string of complaints about compliance versus versus actual capability. All right, the other four points that you made to the committee as potential metrics for the scorecard, cybersecurity, modernization, which surprised me, we'll come back to that in a moment, Uh, digital and workforce. Under the digital piece, you talked about customer experience and particularly referenced the EO. Why, is there some reason beyond the fact that this administration and your administration, to be fair, made that a priority that that's on here? Um, it, the reason that it is on here and the reason I broke it out separate from just because, because digital is a part of the overall modernization journey. Um, what was kind of two key things, the digital capabilities. Now, many agencies have shared, we've, we've turned the, uh, the, the scales have tipped to where many agencies, the way that citizens interact is more digital, the majority is digital versus in-person and in paper. That happened during the pandemic. So it is more important. Kind of the second part of that is, you know, agencies were on that journey anyway, but when we um, made that move, both working remotely, servicing internal mission services remotely with technology, as well as delivering uh, digital services to citizens, we moved very, very quickly. And so there's opportunity to, you know, I'll say uh, enhance those to, you know, a high, we got it there fast, but but now we need to continue delivering, you know, with quality and security. We, we've heard a lot, it kind of links back with the cybersecurity, um, but operating more substantially in that environment with more data and moving to data-driven types of interactions with citizens um, there's still work to do. So, so that's the reason that I think that one is not only worthy of a separate call out, um, it's one that citizens see. So it is meaningful. And when we're having a conversation with Congress, you know, what's meaningful to their constituents is meaningful to them. You pointed out something in your testimony about the uh, customer experience piece of this that I think is applicable too to the broader conversation about the structure of the government as a whole. The reason that I think that's important is because we've talked for decades about how an agency should or shouldn't, how the government should or shouldn't reorganize. 
And if there are digital connections possible on in broader strokes, like the one that you cited, that's more of a small piece. It seems to me that discussion kind of goes away. If we can just make these digital connections, it doesn't matter what box an organization lives in, if it can connect digitally easily to some other organization. Am I thinking about it right or am I overstating the potential importance there, Suzette? No, um, I, I think you're thinking about it in the right frame in that we can deliver cohesive services without necessarily having, you know, every single piece of an operate organization or operation centralized. You can look at many industries and see that same, you know, same kind of thing is that your, your um, digital presence, both web and mobile, can be more cohesive, can be more consistent, and you can still have special expertise that delivers the capabilities and services, the capabilities that are you know, behind those, those different things. But, but using address change, and that was specifically called out in the EO, um, that's an example of a public facing. Some of the collaboration tools that the CIO Council is working on right now, that's an internal example. Shared services, those are internal examples of things that we can do as an enterprise, the way cyber is currently handled and you know the way CISA looks at it from a federal perspective is an enterprise approach. Um, and that elevates you know, the entire you know, government um, and then allows agencies the flexibility to deliver on their own mission. All right, the modernization thing, the reason that interested me, Suzette, that you called it out in that way is because you were very deliberate when you were the federal CIO to not say modernization. We had a long conversation and I apologize if it was not on the record, um, but we had a long conversation one time, you and I, about the fact that you specifically used the term transformation instead of modernization for uh, 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 what I thought at the time was a very good reason. Um, so why, why is that the right way to think about a new measure for the Fatara scorecard? Well, um, you know, I, I use that in turn, you know, kind of to align with my conversation, both with the committee and others in that I don't, we talked about in that same conversation, legacy, right? Yeah. Just focusing on legacy and saying, oh, it's, it's old, it's bad is not necessarily the right thing. It is a transformation. What's bad is not secure, doesn't deliver, you know, good services. It's something that's being sunset. It's not supported. That is bad. Um, when I used modernization in the, the terms, I was I specifically called out data, yeah. automated technologies, digitally driven services, and um, how we how well we are doing addressing things that are at end of life or not supported. Those are worthwhile things to measure and in, in place of, you know, because there's continued to be this search of how do we measure progress against legacy? I don't know that that is what we measure. I think we measure forward transformation. Again, back to data, automation, removing things that are no longer supported. So, you know, that's kind of, you know, what I meant in that. And I specifically chose those because it has to be something that Every agency can be measured equally and it can be featured on the scorecard. Um, there's a lot more here I would like to cover with you. I, I just I love having you on the show. 
Um, and we'll have to have you come back and, and discuss some of these other things. You said at the beginning of our conversation, Suzette, that the data that is used to give the grades on the Vitara scorecard has to be publicly available data. Is there data that maybe isn't publicly available now that could be or that should be that then could make some other measures on the scorecard useful that you haven't discussed here because it's not publicly available now and that isn't currently on the scorecard? Or am I just kind of fishing for something that isn't really there? Well, um, I think what you're asking is, have we fully explored the data question? And and to that, I, I don't think, I think the answer is no. There may be additional data that we could use at a certain level and make it public, right? Not, you know, down to each agency, each sub-bureau, each department, how many vulnerabilities, but like total progress against patching vulnerabilities or, or you know, how quickly. Um, there's also other, when, when we look at um, those metrics and measures, many agencies have actually already automated some of their own data. And I look at that as a way, um, as, a, as a significantly better path forward because Agencies are being transparent. They know what it is all the time. They're looking at it all the time. It's not a surprise when this scorecard comes out, when they say, where the heck did that come from? Um, and we're paying attention to it more frequently than every six months. And, you know, I'll also, again, throw out, I think there are some very mature um, external measures. And when I say external, put together by companies who do this outside government, particularly in the customer experience space, uh, that might be useful to incorporate because they look at additional demographics. They measure against other industries. They look at different types of trends that we don't have those same mechanisms inside government, but the, the outcome is very useful and it's already public. It's already public information. So I think we have a journey both on what we measure and how we might think about measuring it. All right. Uh, I can't confirm you're the first person in history to say you were excited to testify at, at a <laughs> hearing in the, House, in the House of Representatives. But James Mahoney, my fantastic producer, has confirmed that you're the first person in the history of the Daily Scoop podcast to say that. So <laughs> thank you very much for coming on, Suzette. It's great to talk to you. Thanks for having me, Francis. You can find a link to the Fatara hearing and Suzette's testimony at it in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Coming on Tuesday's show, the Defense Department's rapid response to Log4J, the Defense Digital Services leader, says it'll inform how her team responds to vulnerabilities in the future. Katie Olson is on Tuesday's Daily Scoop podcast. That show debuts Tuesday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. One of the federal government's leaders in robotics process automation isn't in the government anymore. Friday was Gerard Bedorick's last day as the chief financial officer at the General Services Administration. Gerard, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. I want to talk about the work that you did CFO-wise and automation-wise. But my first question is, how do you know, or how did you in your particular case know, how does one know that it's the right time to step away from a job as important as a CFO job in a federal agency? Welcome. Yeah, Francis, uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, it's an interesting question, and I always think about the, the value that I can drive and, and where we have uh, been able to get to. And I felt really good 
that the transformation of the CFO office, which was my initial focus, uh, had occurred. And then um, the government-wide initiative was was something that really interested me, and, and I think we're in a good spot uh, today across the federal government. What's the transformation of the CFO shop at GSA look like? When you came in there, what did you have and what do you think you leave behind? How is it different? How is it better? Yeah, very good question. So um, when I came in, GSA had consolidated uh, all of their financial personnel. So there were financial uh, leaders in 14 different offices under the regional commissioners and the PBS and BAS commissioner. And, and the CFO of GSA was a corporate CFO. So it had been all pulled together. Um, today, uh, uh, so I, I was brought in to do the transformation, the change management. Uh, today, we've got uh, a zonal structure rather than 11 regional CFOs. Uh, we've got centralized leadership of the budget organization. The financial audit, uh, has, we've done very well on the audit uh, from where we were uh, uh, two of the last three years, no material weakness, significant deficiencies. Um, really a value-added partner for the rest of the agency. The uh, the, uh, the organization has become more productive, reduced uh, staffing initially by 23% or got that level of efficiency. And then finally, the our, our engagement scores have gone up 21 percentage points. We're at 86, 87% engagement, employee satisfaction. Uh, the Partnership of Public Service does the best places to work. Uh, we're 19 out of 410 organizations and um, and the highest rate of finance organization. So I, I've got to stop using the word we, so I apologize for no, that. No, that's all right. That's all right. You bought into it. That's good. Yeah, but that's how I left it. So I felt very good about it. Um, the employee engagement scores are an obvious byproduct of the work that you did. What are the other tangibles that maybe even outside the CFO shop that the agency has realized as a result of the work? What What works better at GSA as a result of the work that you did inside the CFO shop, do you think? Yeah, I, um, one of the things that we did was to uh, uh, not just be an operational organization that certified funds. We, were, we became an organization that provided value through monthly financial briefings. And, and really, the financial briefings are business briefings. So uh, the leaders were, uh, uh, were engaged on what was happening in their business through these monthly financial reviews. Uh, you know, I think that was um, uh, a positive outcome. Uh, the strategic planning process this year, uh, the leaders, top leaders uh, met on each of our strategic goals. So it really was uh, a strategic plan that was thoughtful and put together uh, by the agency. Uh, we, we've got quarterly performance reviews. We have a budget review process where uh, the leaders of the units were, were empowered to make budget decisions and trade-offs and resources. Um, the, whole, uh, uh, the whole concept around the, the controls you have in the agency and, and audits, we really established ownership uh, for, for different areas and accountability uh, uh, for being proactive in, in actions that, that GSA could be taken. So there, there are a lot of ways that we tried to help the rest of the agency uh, uh, get better. Uh, and we're also engaged on, on business issues and discussions uh, uh, with uh, parts of the business on, on how they can, uh, how we can help them provide more value uh, in the work that they do. If I got my timeline right, you were the CFO under four different administrators at GSA. I have Carnahan, Murphy, Roth, Tangerlini, 
And I wonder if there was a difference in the way that any of those administrators approached the, the relationship they wanted the CFO shop to have with the rest of the top leadership at GSA. Yeah, it's an interesting question because, um, you know, is, is in positions that are appointed, um, uh, the individuals have a lot of great qualities, but they may have never, may or may not have seen how CFO would operate. So Dan Tangerlini was the tra- was the CFO at Treasury, I believe. So he, he had a pretty good idea. But but there is uh, a bit of uh, uh, a, a start over when you get someone new and and you're helping to explain what what the office uh, can do. But but our, our engagement was with uh, our business partners, so the PBS. Uh, commissioner and, and others in the business. So we we already had uh, a, tr- a, a the CFO office, if it's set up the right way, has that network in place so that when you have uh, a new leader, a new administrator, the infrastructure it, it already exists underneath to uh, to operate the organization very effectively. I think that's one of the things that's different about GSA that maybe people don't understand from the outside looking in. Your peers are not just Dave Shive, the CIO, uh, the chief acquisition officer for the agency itself. Your peers are also the head of PBS, the head of FAS, the head of OGP, uh, you know, the the major components inside the organization, right? Yes, as well as the head of the technologies uh, transformation yes. service. Team. Yes, yes. So you got it exactly right. And and if, if you are a quality support organization, you are looking at how you can make their jobs easier, uh, provide them with the right information, uh, uh, have meaningful discussions with those leaders. So you're exactly right. That 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 was the the group. The, those uh, those offices and their deputies were uh, uh, the peer group of the CFO in my mind. I want to uh, go to RPA because I I think it was about two years ago, maybe longer than that, uh, that you invited me to come downtown, and you walked me through kind of a presentation that you gave. No, it was longer than two years ago because the presentation that you gave me was the same presentation you were giving through the RPA community practice to talk to agencies who were just at the very beginning of the automation process. And it was really instructive to me, Gerard, and I really appreciate the time that you took to do that. Um, what What's your assessment of kind of the state of the art of automation tools in general, not just in CFO shops, but more broadly across government right now. So, um, Francis, my heart says uh, give it an A plus, right? Right. But uh, I really can't do that because uh, you know my threshold when you think about something like RPA is that uh, every agency has thousands of automations uh, in place, and um, and that's not happened yet, but but I can tell you, if, if you think about uh, any technology, is there any other technology in the federal government that's getting the attention and and focus and, and spotlight that RPA is? And and it's really uh, been exciting for me to see the passion uh, as agencies move along that curve from just starting out to seeing what uh, they can do. And it's really uh, RPA plus more automation and other tools that you can do. So I, I, I'm very excited about that and where the government is and, and, and how many agencies are producing more automations and, and 
uh, just where uh, where where this is in, in in the federal government. Are we at an acceleration point? Do you think where agencies have a good sense of what automation can do and they're learning how to scale, or are we still in the educational process where agencies are st- still trying to figure out, oh, this can really work for me, and we should really explore this, or some maybe some combination of both, yeah. or maybe we're beyond both of those phases. Where do you think we are right yeah. now? So, so that's that's a uh, terrific question. And the, the federal state of RPA report, uh, the last couple of years, uh, we set up a maturity matrix. And, and there are a lot of characteristics in that. But but the first two were uh, how many automations you have in production, what's the capacity that you've created uh, with that. So it was a very much a focus on results. So we, we've got uh, you know, about a dozen agencies that are are, are really doing well. The uh, the community of practice has a management committee, and on that management committee are leaders from an uh, uh, RPA from uh, nine different agencies. So so we clearly have uh, agencies that have have moved uh, moved ahead. So it, it, it is beyond uh, just let me show you what uh, an application could be. It's not that way across the board, but but I think we have. Uh, agencies that uh, can be examples for the rest of uh, uh, the federal government and other agencies. Among the agencies that are doing well, Gerard, what are they doing that causes you to give them that assessment? Uh, well, well, they've, they've got um, a program that, that, that's somewhat centralized. Uh, they've got the capability to deliver uh, automations. Uh, they've partnered with their IT organization to solve uh, any of the technology challenges. Uh, They've got uh, an excitement in their organization. And, and one of the attributes is in the maturity matrix is whether you're doing this across all functions or whether it's just your CFO or your acquisitions officers. So, so they are doing it across, uh, across the agency and implementing the, these automations. So it, it's, that, uh, you know, it's that level of interest and, and excitement. Uh, within the agency. You mentioned the partnership with the IT organization, and you were very clear a couple of years ago in that presentation that your partnership with David Shive was one of the most important elements of you being able to scale as rapidly as you were able to scale. One of the things that I took away from that that I think you were very proud of was the ability with which uh, GSA was able to scale, and you gave him, I think, a lot of credit for your ability to do that. Yeah, I, I think Francis, there there are a set of rules and requirements that the CIOs want to have in place, right? And and to be honest with you, as a business person, it still seems like um, there are a fair number, but but that's that's how you engage, that's how you make progress. And and we very quickly said, okay, what do we have to do? What do we have to demonstrate to you? What's this process going to look going to need to look like? And and said, let's move on and build automation. So so it's it's been it's been a partnership, and uh, you know, in, in agencies across the board, whether it's in the CFO shop or somewhere else, they need to work with their uh, IT organizations and CIOs. All right. Well, my prediction for 2022 is that RPA is going to be maybe the most important uh, source of gain for agencies, especially time-wise and workforce-wise, but also money-wise. So now that you're out and it's a little easier for me to get a hold of you, uh, I will look forward to continuing this conversation, Gerard. Congratulations on your time at GSA and uh, don't uh, be a stranger. Keep us posted on what you're going to do next. Do you know what you're going to do next? No, no, I don't. And I'll tell you, tell you, Francis, the, the ability of this RPA to teach the government how to collaborate and work together and deliver automation. See, I, I, uh, 
the COP has not been just about uh, implementing RPA. It, it, it's getting agencies together to collaborate and, and do technology. So I am, uh, I'm going to take some time off. Uh, I, I really want to think about where I can add the most values so, uh, and reflect a little bit and, and just uh, think about what's next for me. So, so uh, probably will be uh, uh, a, a couple months or a month or two here of, of uh, relaxation and golf. Well, I, w- I was going to say, I'm sure golf will be involved. I'm grateful for your time today, and I'm grateful for your time over the years, and I look forward to continuing the conversation, Gerard. Thank you very much, Francis. You can find a link to the work of the RPA Community of Practice in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together every day, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Tuesday's Daily Scoop podcast features Katie Olson of the Defense Digital Service. That show debuts tomorrow afternoon. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks very much for listening.